Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Just a content warning on this one, guys. This episode does briefly discuss matters of suicide and therefore may be triggering to some listeners. If you or a loved one is struggling, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. She had made a minor mistake and the surgeon was telling her off, stomped on her foot and it broke. It wasn't just a little nudge or a little warning. It was a full-on stomp. She just hobbled around on that broken foot without telling anyone because she knew that if she said something that she could potentially lose her spot on the training program. It's a highly competitive training program and she works so hard to get onto it and it's just shocking that surgeons can get away with assault. Welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the brave Yumiko Kadoda. Yumiko, as you'd read in her new memoir, Emotional Female, has been an overachiever her entire life, studying medicine at university and deciding to enter the perilous surgical stream when specialising as a doctor. Only it was when Yumiko found herself trying to become a surgeon that she encountered the true, brutal nature of Australia's hospital culture. Yumiko was subjected to such a ridiculous work schedule, colleagues who are unflinching in their coldness, and institutionalised sexism and racism that she was pushed to a mental breakdown in her late 20s, prompting her to take extended leave from her career and spend time as an inpatient in a psychiatric facility. Here we talk about the highs and lows of being a female doctor in Australia, as well as what can be done to ensure the next generation of female surgeons aren't pushed to a place they can't come back from. Here's Yumiko. Yumiko Kadoda, welcome to Shameless in Conversation. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me and hello, Zara. Yumiko, we have been asked by so many of our listeners to get you on for this chat, so they will be so excited to hear that we have you. We have to start where we always do, which is to ask, what were you like as a kid? Oh, I was a bit of a naughty kid. I was a bit of a black sheep in my family, very cheeky, but always ambitious. You left Japan at three months old and called the Philippines, Singapore and England home before moving to Australia. 
What made Australia feel like home once you had arrived? I think it helped that I came with my family. So it didn't feel like any interruption to my life. I always had my close unit with me. I'm one of three girls. I've got two younger sisters. I'm super close with them even now. So I think moving as a whole family definitely helped. If I had come on my own, I think I would have had a different experience. But we initially moved to a part of Sydney that had a lot of Japanese people as well. So that did help, I think, a little bit. But I sound like an Aussie now, I guess. I I think that I've learned to adapt to new places really quickly just because I had to move so much as a kid. Like I would have been 13 when I moved to England from Singapore and then 15 when I came here. So those are kind of very important developmental years in anyone's life. And I think those big changes forced me to adapt really quickly and Yeah, like I said, I know the accent is only a small thing, but when I lived in England, I had a very pommy accent. And when I moved here, my voice changed. So I think that if you move a lot when you're young, you tend to adapt a bit quicker. I imagine. Hey, talk to us about your two sisters. You dedicated your book to your two sisters. They are in sort of the first or second page of the book. Can you talk to us about your bond? Yeah, um, the three of us always did everything together. My sister Erica is just two years younger than me. So growing up, Everyone used to think we were twins and my mum used to always dress us in the same dresses. So we bonded a lot when we were younger. My sister Mariko is actually six years younger than me, but I feel like we're the same person. We always agree on things. We finish each other's sentences. Like a lot of sisters, we have our own little language. We shared a room for a really long time. My middle sister Erica needed her own room because she had some sleeping issues. So Mariko and I had the same room until I think well into uni actually we we (laughs) we shared the same room so every single night we would just chat until my mum came in and said go to bed stop chatting (laughs) yeah I'm really close to both of them in your high school years you were tossing up between studying music and studying medicine what drew you to choose medicine I think that I always loved science and I like that it also had the human element of looking after people as well. So I think the combination of those two things really drew me to it. And I think my mother thought that it would be a sensible decision as well. She said, you know, music will always be a part of your life. And I still have a piano in my apartment and I still play it now and then. She said, music can always be a hobby, but you can't really be a doctor as a hobby. So why don't you do, why don't you do medicine? So I think you probably had some influence <laughs> too. <laughs> but she, you know, my parents were always pretty open-minded about what I did. They would have been happy either way, but after having chats with them and, Thinking about it further, I thought medicine probably would be the better choice for me. How did you feel about that decision in the early years of studying at uni? Like, were you enjoying the study? Were you thinking, yep, this is what I'm going to do forever? Yeah, definitely. I loved it straight away. I knew from the first week that I'd done the right thing by going into medicine. I was so excited, learning lots of new things. It's just fascinating. And there's such breadth in medicine that there's something for everyone, I feel. And so there were lots of different subjects to keep my interest. And the new course at my uni allows first year students to start going to the hospitals. In the past, they used to just teach us the sciences, and then you'd only start your clinical work in the the later years of medical school. But they threw us in there straight away. So I got to experience it very early and, and I loved it. Yumiko, what is really hard to read really early on in the book is you write about being a teenage student and being sexually harassed by an Mm. older male doctor who harassed you under the guise of being your counsellor. What do you remember from that time? 
Gosh, that was so hard. I was so shocked because I'm thinking, this is my professor. He's meant to look after me. And he, not just any old professor, he was a professor of oncology. So this is a man who looks after people with cancer. So you'd think someone like that would be kind and do the right thing and have a higher moral standard than anyone else. So when he started counseling me because I was going through some grief, having lost my godmother to cancer, I fully trusted him. So when he started touching me inappropriately, I just froze initially. I just didn't know what was going on. And I just struggled so much with that because I'm thinking, gosh, do I say something? Because this is someone who's potentially going to examine me at the final year exams. He potentially has some influence on my career path ahead. So I felt really hopeless, actually. What was the push and pull between, I guess, wanting to tell people about what had happened to you and what he had done to you and also not wanting to ruin your career prospects so early on? I really just didn't want him to do it to somebody else. And that's why I felt really strongly about telling someone. So I did tell a faculty member at the uni, but she kind of left it to me saying, look, it's up to you whether you want to report or not. And that doesn't give you a lot of confidence because you're not sure whether she's going to back you or not if you put through the complaint. And I actually had a chat about this to a couple of friends over the weekend who are also doctors. They're consultants now. And they said, if a medical student, a 19-year-old medical student comes to you and says that they got assaulted, then all of us now would feel so strongly to support that person to put through a complaint because it's something that shouldn't happen. It's just such a gross violation. And to think that a faculty member just left it up to me to do something about it, I just feel really sad thinking about it. And I just hope that moving forward, especially now listening to everything that's coming out of parliament, I hope that young students of any studies will feel like they would be supported if they did want to make a complaint. Absolutely. Yumiko, I guess across the medical industry or across doctors in general who are being admitted into universities at the moment, we do have increasingly more gender parity between men and women. However, when it comes to areas like surgery, we don't have that at all yet. And we really don't see much change coming either year to year. What pushed you to want to become a surgeon? It's a very demanding area of an already very demanding (laughs) career path. What pushed you to think, I want to be a surgeon? I've always been pretty gung-ho. I like challenges. And I think that I've always been a mechanical learner and a visual learner. So it made sense for my sort of thinking to go into surgery. And I think possibly having played the piano for such a really long time had some sort of effect on me as well. I like doing things with my hands and I like the idea that my two little hands can help somebody. And I like the technical challenge, learning new skills, as well as all the other aspects of caring for people with surgery. And plastic surgery in particular was so interesting to me because it's a very creative part of surgery. You know, like I said before, I tossed up between music and medicine. I've always had this kind of left brain, right brain thing. I I like that it appeal to both sides of my brain. And I remember hearing about a case where a man had had a jaw injury and they reconstructed that with his rib because they looked at the curvature of a rib and thought, oh, that approximates the curvature of the mandible. So to choose a rib to reconstruct the jaw, I thought that was brilliant. Like to know the anatomy of the body, 
in such great depth and then to have the technical ability to reconstruct the jaw from a rib, I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's the kind of work that I want to do. At the moment, though, only 12% of surgeons are women. Did that stat worry you? Did the culture worry you going into it as a young student? No, it really didn't. And my dad always said to me, you can do anything you want to do. So it was never something that bothered me at all. I didn't even think about it. And I, I don't think I even knew the statistics at the time. I knew that it was definitely more men than women. I barely saw any women surgeons as a student, but it never stopped me from going for it. When you were a registrar working with surgeons, you were explicitly told, and I quote, surgery is easier when you're not going to have a kid. You were then asked by a surgeon, you're not planning on having babies, are you? Of that interaction, you wrote in the book, warning bells were sounding in my ears. If I were to succeed in this profession, it was obvious there are a few things I might have to keep to myself. How did the suggestion that becoming a mother would be an inconvenience to not only your career, but an inconvenience to the people that you're working with make you feel? Oh, it just made me want to become less feminine, not not to be myself at work, just to be one of the boys. And I think a lot of women feel that pressure in surgery, even just the banter across the operating table. There are a lot of sexist jokes and you feel like you have to be a bit more blokey at work just to fit into those kind of informal conversations because those things do matter. If you seem like someone who can't take a joke or fit in with the boys, it can be really difficult. So When I heard that, I just thought, well, I better keep my personal life to myself. And and I even thought, well, maybe I'll bring up golf at the next conversation I have because is that what I have to do to fit in? Do you believe that you were actively discriminated against in the surgery? Like as a woman, as a Japanese woman, did you feel like your position in these surgeries was discriminated because of who you were? Sometimes it was subtle and other times it really wasn't. I think there were probably some unconscious things going on every day, but other times it was right in my face. I remember playing some music and a surgeon walked in thinking, oh, what is this? I feel like I've walked into a tampon commercial. So (laughs) there are comments like that that make me feel like, whoa, like I really am a girl in this very male-dominated specialty. So sometimes it, it slapped me in the face like that. Other times it was a bit more subtle. But it's only really in retrospect that I realized that there was an element of both racism and sexism in my experience because when you're under the pump and working so hard, you just don't have time to even think about it. I brushed all of those things off and it's only really in the last two years that I was writing the book and reflecting on all of those comments I've received over the years that I realised, oh, damn, I really did put up with a lot of stuff. But at the time, each incident I used to brush off and not think too much about it. But now that I've kind of compiled everything together, I think, wow, that's a lot. (laughs) There were a couple of stories that really stood out to me when I read your book. One story was you explaining that somehow, even today, it's expected that female surgeons or aspiring female surgeons wear skirt suits to their interviews, as in older male surgeons don't like women going into the industry wearing pants, which it goes without saying is just completely bizarre and incredibly archaic. The other thing that stuck with me, though, was you telling the story of when you interviewed for a position in the surgical stream, you were in front of a panel and every doctor, bar two doctors on that panel, 
scored you between a 16 and a 19 out of 20. And those scores were great. Those scores generally should probably place you in a program. They're good enough to get you in. However, two of the doctors on that panel both scored you a 5 out of 20 and those scores were the reason you didn't get in. I want to know what went through your head when you found those scores out because I can only imagine what I would feel if it happened to me and if I saw such a glaring disparity in what people were scoring me as on the same performance the same interview I couldn't reach any other conclusion other than they're not interested in hiring a woman for this job or in your case they're not interested in hiring a woman of color or a woman who isn't white How did you reckon with that? I I imagine it would be incredibly difficult when being a surgeon is your big aspiration and yet these people are standing in your way. It would be so soul-destroying. Yeah, that experience was really demoralising. I thought I had performed well at the interview, so to miss out on a spot, I knew I needed to get some feedback. So when I did get that feedback and looked at the scores, I was thinking, why did those two people give me five when they were at the same interview as all these other surgeons who gave me a high score and I mentioned it later on when a colleague said to me look they already know who they want before the interview so there's really nothing you can do about it and I think that that probably was the situation then I don't think it had anything to do with me being a woman or me being Asian at the time I think they probably had people that they wanted and they possibly were white males it's hard to know but I think that They can manipulate the scores to bring other people down and bring their candidate up by differentially scoring, giving their favorite candidate 20 out of 20 and then putting someone else 5 out of 20 so that it brings their preferred candidate up. It's a very close circle. You know, those surgeons determine who gets the jobs in all of Sydney for plastic surgery, unaccredited registrar jobs. So it's really those 15 men in the room who decide who gets the job for the next year. God, that must be frustrating even at the time, but also looking back to think that this is how it all happened. In the book, Yumiko, you also wrote about a guy called Trevor, a colleague who intentionally misled you and manipulated you to get ahead because you were competing for the same spots. We wanted to ask you about the hyper-competitiveness of being Mm. or becoming a doctor. Like what does that hyper-competitiveness do to your psyche? Gosh, it it leads to a lot of distrust, I think. Everyone's just out to get you sometimes. I felt kind of betrayed when Trevor took my CV, pretending that he was applying for a course that I really would have been interested in, which, you know, ended up not existing. And it's a shame because I think... Most people, when they go to work, they want to have fun and enjoy the people they work with. And I always like this idea of having your work fam. And I'm lucky now that I, I'm still able to work in, in clinical medicine with people that I really like working with. But it's a shame when the people that you hang out with every single day do that to you because you think, wow, it's that competitive that you can't even be friendly and enjoy the people you're working with because you never know what their motives are. We really do want to hone in on the toxic culture 
that seems to permeate a lot of, I don't know if surgical wards is the right way to word it, but certainly seems to permeate the profession. You wrote in a piece once that in 2013, you saw the darkest side of surgery in that one of your registrars was reprimanded by a neurosurgeon who stomped on her foot and broke it. Before we kind of unpack just how toxic surgery can be, can you tell us about that incident and what happened that day? Yeah, so she had made a minor mistake and the surgeon was telling her off, stomped on her foot and it broke. It wasn't just a little nudge or a little warning. It was a full-on stomp and she just hobbled around on that broken foot without telling anyone because she knew that if she said something then she could potentially lose her spot on the training program. It's a highly competitive training program and she worked so hard to get onto it that she felt like, she didn't want to jeopardize her position by saying anything. And it's just shocking that surgeons can get away with assault like that. You know, you hear about surgeons throwing instruments and chucking tantrums in the operating theater, but that was the first time I heard about an actual physical injury being caused by a surgeon. That is just a nut story to the point where it's almost unbelievable. But I think given how well you articulate the toxic nature of your industry, it makes more and more sense, sadly. And it's interesting because toxic workplaces do exist in every industry. But do you think there is something to be said for the kinds of people who become doctors and the hierarchical hospital structures that mean that medical and surgical industries may be more extreme in their toxicity? Yeah, definitely. I think that there are a lot of type A personalities in surgery in particular, just because it's just so competitive, you need to be really fiery to get ahead. And I remember being told as a student, there's no space for wallflowers here. So you really need to stick up for yourself. And like you said, the hierarchy plays a huge part in it. It's all about the power dynamics, I think. People in positions of power can get away with so much because they control your future. In Australia, there's only one college of surgeons. You know, in other industries, you might be able to go down a career path through different training providers. But for surgery, there's only one path. So if you don't get onto that one, there's no other way that you can become a surgeon. So I think that's why there's a tremendous amount of pressure to perform well, because you only have that one shot. Coming up after the break, when Yumiko hit breaking point. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Yumiko, in 2021, we've seen the government have to reckon with just how badly their culture has been functioning and how sexist it has been as well for so many of the women who want to pursue a career in politics. I know it's a difficult question to answer, maybe so far as the hospital system goes, but how bad do you think the current state of the medical and surgical industries are right now when it comes to sexism? How deeply do you think those industries need to reckon with their own culture problems that they might have? Gosh, I don't know whether it's worse or better than parliament, but I think they're both terrible. And it's not even just medicine or politics. I think it's other industries as well. And I think that any industry that has that rigid hierarchical structure will have this sort of problem. 
Yumiko, what is really persistent throughout the book is just simply how much you were working when you were working. Like you were working such obscenely long hours that at many points you dreamt about work. You were being woken by work in the middle of the night. You were dreaming about the hospital. Junior doctors do generally work upwards of 60 hours a week, often for shifts that are longer than 12 hours. But at one stage in the book, you worked eight days in a row of 24-hour on-call shifts. How did that lifestyle start to affect you? It was really hard on my mental health more than my physical health. I was used to working long hours, but when you're on for 24 hours, you you don't necessarily have to be at the hospital that whole time. You can go home, but there's just this mental unrest. You can't relax because you can get called at any time during that 24-hour period and you don't get to switch off. It's like putting your computer or any sort of device on standby the whole time, knowing that you can get called. And when you do get called, you have to be really switched on, make sure you're giving the correct information over the phone, if it's over the phone or in person. And there's a lot of pressure because you don't want to say the wrong thing because you're going to affect the patient's health. You need to be sharp and ready at all times. And that was mentally very fatiguing. What's so curious about this, though, is it truly seems like working such insane hours and being put on eight days in a row or 22 days in a row or 23 days in a row, Mm. like you said in the book, it seems counterintuitive to actually being a good doctor or being a good surgeon. And yet so many young people in the industry or people in general, they kind of boast about how many hours they're working or they boast about how well they're doing. Did that strike you as completely bizarre in the moment to think we really should be prioritizing self-care and getting rest given we're literally operating on people's bodies? It was so toxic. I felt like it was mainly my male colleagues. It it was a bit like toxic masculinity. It's like who is tougher? Oh, yeah, I did this many hours. And it became kind of like a competition for who can put up with the longest shifts and who can work for how many days in a row. And it shouldn't be a competition because it's just so unsafe. And it's not like there are no consequences to working these crazy hours. There are huge consequences. Patients' lives can be at risk and you can make mistakes when you're that tired. I always draw the parallels to driving. You know, you don't want someone who's drunk driving. And we also know that fatigue is a big killer on the roads. So same thing with surgery. You don't want someone drunk operating on your body and you shouldn't really want a sleep deprived surgeon operating on you either because it can lead to lots of mistakes. Despite you being one of the very few people to even qualify to become a doctor, you wrote in the book that the process to try and become a surgeon still made you feel like you're nothing. And to so many people, the thought of seeing a doctor see themselves as nothing is, is pretty incomprehensible. Can you explain how the system did push you to that point? Yeah, I felt like I was a nobody until I was on the program because until you're selected onto this training program, nothing you've done counts. So until you're selected and you finish this training fellow to become a specialist, you could spend years and years working in the hospital system for it to amount to no formal qualification. Yeah, it was very demeaning to struggle so much to get onto this very coveted training program. And it was hard seeing some of my friends who I'd graduated with advance in their careers, whether it was in GP or physician's training, other surgical specialties, but see myself stop and not being able to get over these hurdles. I just felt like such a loser compared to my friends. 
This all led to you going through a very dark time mentally and physically. In 2018, you began thinking about injuring yourself so that you wouldn't have to operate anymore. Then one day while you were driving into work, you were so run down and so stressed that you actually lost control of your bowels. Can you take us to that time and explain to us just how desperate your mental health situation was? Gosh, I was so desperate. I went to see my GP about it too. And she's someone who I've known for a number of years and she'd never seen me like that before. And I was lucky that she was so supportive and she even wrote a letter to the hospital because she was that worried. But no one read her letter or responded or said anything about it. And I think that that incident when I lost control of my bowels, that was the huge warning sign for me because over the years, I'd learned how to cope with stress and I'd ignore any signs of, of mental distress. But that was the first time that my physical body was that run down. And it was shocking because I think I was 29 or 30 at the time. And I'm thinking, gosh, I'm a young person and I don't even have control over my basic bodily functions. Like surely there is something very wrong here. And until my body broke down, I really didn't stop to think that, I was getting pushed over the edge, but that was the moment when I thought that there's something really seriously wrong here. Take us back to the day you resigned. It was the 1st of June, 2018. It was your 24th consecutive day of work, 19 of which were 24 hour on call days, which is just insane. What do you remember of that breaking point? The night before, my colleague sent a new roster, him and another colleague, an ENT registrar, were going to be taking leave towards the end of term. So I would be covering their holidays. And so it showed that I was working, I think, 19 consecutive days in June and 21 in July, or maybe it was the other way around. But I thought, this isn't going to get any better. If anything, it's going to get worse because I'll be covering their leave as well. And I just physically didn't feel like I could keep going. I was just so both physically, mentally, and emotionally broken at that point that I thought, I don't think I can work that much. And I realized that despite all of these efforts to try and change the roster to make it a bit fairer and more manageable, there was just no use. I wasn't getting anywhere. So I thought, that's it. I'm done. You were eventually diagnosed with depression. And at one stage, you were also an inpatient in a psych ward. It seems like from the outside, at least, that leaving medicine and leaving your job saved your life. Is that accurate? Yeah, very accurate. One of my colleagues, she's in the book called Jan. She was my registrar when I was a student in neurosurgery. And we kept in touch over the years. And she messaged me when I quit. I told her about it. And she said, thank God you're alive. And oh, I get goosebumps thinking about that time because she wasn't being dramatic at all. We have lost colleagues to overwork and poor mental health. Every year there are junior doctors who take their lives. And so she was so relieved. A lot of my friends were just relieved. A lot of them were happy that I quit. They said, oh, thank God. We were wondering when you were going to quit. We were wondering how long you were going to put up with that. And that came from a lot of my women colleagues who had quit surgery and now doing other things. And a lot of them said, thank God you've left. So I think it did save my life. And I think that getting the help that I needed at that time to recover was a very vital part in getting better again. And I didn't even know how sick I was until I quit. 
The next year, it was in 2019, you wrote a blog post about your experience as a doctor. And I heard in an interview, you said you sort of just wrote it on your blog and you didn't really think that anyone would read it because you didn't have that many subscribers. I think on this interview, you said you thought you had 11 subscribers. But this blog post blew up. It completely blew up. Did that surprise you? And what kind of feedback were you getting from other people who were reading this piece? I was really surprised. And I think it was important for me to write about it for myself but I didn't think so many people would relate to it and it was such a good experience in that it validated my experience because I think a lot of people feel gaslighted from work if you burn out or something happens you're made to feel like you're the weak one or you're the one with the problem and you're the crazy one so for for a long time I felt quite isolated but by writing about it and other doctors writing to me saying that is exactly what I've gone through as well. We were able to validate each other's experience by discussing it. So I think that that was powerful. It's scary because I feel like just even looking at the people around me, like this is clearly an issue for people who work in hospitals in particular. We touched on before toxic workplaces are everywhere in every industry, but clearly things are quite terrible in a lot of hospitals around the country. I want to know If it was up to you, if you could bring in policies or if you could make rule changes to bring about better work-life balance for people working in hospitals, particularly surgeons and doctors, what would be the rules that you'd bring in first? I think the first thing that we can do is make sure there's adequate staffing and safe working hours. These guidelines already exist. Both the AMA and College of Surgeons have safe work guidelines, but no one actually follows them. They're just guidelines and recommendations. I think we need to mandate them. We have to make sure that there are enough registrars covering the on-call shift. You know, every specialty has a 24-hour service so that if someone comes to the hospital and needs that specialist attention, there's always someone you can call. But you need to be able to share that workload fairly. So I think it needs to be enforced that there's a minimum number of registrars, let's say three. I am aware that ENT service is commonly covered by two registrars, but there was a suicide of an ENT registrar. So they changed it so that there's a minimum of three registrars. And I think that that's really important to have that minimum number so that you're protecting the the registrars covering that shift. And also to make sure that they're not doing consecutive on-call hours, making sure that there's a break from it. I think that that's the safest thing to do first and the the easiest thing to put in place. The other stuff about culture, that's a lot harder to change because it's so hard to measure culture. But cultural change definitely needs to happen. And I know that there are different programs by the various colleges, whether it's anti-bullying campaigns or diversity and inclusion initiatives. I think those things are important. They're a lot harder to measure and a lot harder to put in place. So I I would start by making sure there's enough people and that they're not working untenable hours. Getting enough people on the roster seems like something that should be easy. Like you're not the first one, Yumiko, to speak out about how deadly this kind of lifestyle can be. We have lost so many young people, so many young doctors to suicide, so many medical students as well. What's going on here? If it's something that seems quite simple, which I agree with you, it shouldn't be this hard. They should be able to put more people on. What's happening? Why are we not seeing any change? It's not hard at all because when I quit, they replaced me with two people. So that was easy enough. I think that maybe it's a bit of stubbornness, a bit of, oh, but we got through it in the past. So why should you have an easy attitude? I don't think that some of the senior 
surgeons recognize the need for more people in the workforce. I think there's this idea that if you've gone through a hard time, then you should just keep perpetuating that same thing. And we need to break that cycle because it's so harmful. It is such a harmful thing to say, isn't it? And so common across a few industries that from older employees or older people who have gone through it that, well, I went through it, so you must as well. And I'm really interested, given how public you are about talking about all of this stuff now, given the book has come out and has been really successful, have you got much backlash from those kinds of people who don't like you talking about the toxicity of the industry? Like, have there been consequences for you having these conversations? Not directly, but I'm seeing a lot of one-star reviews <laughs> online from anonymous accounts that uh, were made in March 2021, especially made to write nasty things. I've been called all sorts of things. I've been called narcissistic, self-indulgent. I'm apparently making a career out of victimhood, all these things. But they're not from actual people. They're from these anonymous troll accounts claiming to be doctors. So so far the backlash has been from people I don't know or possibly people I do know but using anonymous accounts. But the colleges have taken interest. You know, the College of Obstetrics and Gynecology got in touch about an event. So the organizations do, I think, take it seriously and do want to hear what I have to say and recognize that there is a huge problem with Bullying, burnout, sexism, all of these themes are common across all medical specialties. Haven't heard anything from the surgeons, but I have heard from other medical groups. When you look back at young Yumiko, who chose medicine over music, how do you feel? Like if you could go back in time, would you have made the same decision that you did? Yeah, definitely. There's so much good that you can do through medicine. And if I had my time again, I would still choose medicine, but I think I would choose a different path. There are some things I know now that I didn't know then. For example, even choosing the hospital that I started off at, because I went to a very big trauma hospital in Melbourne. And I think sometimes when you work at a big hospital, you get eaten up by the big machine of the hospital. And I do know that other people who went to smaller hospitals had a more positive experience because on the smaller units, they tend to look after you more and retain their staff. Whereas at the big hospitals, they require a lot more from their registrars. So when I was a resident, I pretty much had to go somewhere else to get experience and then come back. And so they kind of get rid of people after the first few years until you get experience to progress. And yeah, working in a big hospital, there are so many other people you're competing with. So if you show interest in something, they pretty much tell you to get in the line. (laughs) There are so many of you, so they don't necessarily look after individuals as well. I think that I would probably choose to work at a different hospital. But some of the things I went through were unavoidable. And I don't know how I would protect myself without cultural change that is so desperately needed. Yumiko, what does life look like now? I'm a lot happier now, I'm so thankful to say. Only recently I've been able to go back to some clinical work. I'm still able to work in surgery. So I work with two plastic surgeons as their assistant surgeons. So some operations are big and they need a second pair of hands. So I'm doing that now, which is not as rewarding as being a solo surgeon, but I think that I just had to put my ego in check and say, you know what, it's okay. I'm okay with playing second fiddle because it allows me to do other things and 
have a bit of a life now. So I did some yoga teacher training and I, I learned how to be a body pump instructor. So I do that twice a week now. And that for me is for actually more my mental health than my physical health. My psychiatrist said to me that for good mental health, three sessions of resistance exercise a week is really helpful. That's the current recommendation. So me being very nerdy, I wanted to stick to that recommendation and say, <laughs> okay, I can do that. That's my prescription. Three sessions of resistance a week I think I'll do that by doing body pump so that's my protected time because I am now instructing the class I can't not turn up so now I'm forced to do those sessions of resistance exercise so (laughs) I'm doing that for my mental health and I have a bit more freedom now to go out for brunch and read and do fun things like that and still do a little bit of clinical medicine and I'm still involved at the uni as well I teach anatomy there I feel like I can do a little bit of things that I like without going overboard by working too much. So I feel balanced now. Mm. What has all of this taught you about the value of life and the point of life? Oh, that at the end, you just have to look after yourself and think about what your values are. There's just no point in pushing yourself that hard, no matter how much you love something it shouldn't come at the expense of your physical and mental health. Yumiko, our second last question for you is a hypothetical that we throw at everyone that comes on our show. We want to ask you, we want you to imagine that you're walking past a table of acquaintances maybe and you hear them having a conversation about you. What do you want them to say about you in that conversation? I hope they'll talk about my more fun side I think that with these interviews it's so full-on having to talk about bullying and all these heavy themes so I hope that they'll talk about other aspects of my personality I'm not just a burnout girl (laughs) Um, I hope they'll say oh remember Yumiko saying something funny about married at first sight last night or something Yumiko, our final question, with all of this in mind, what is success to you? How do you define success in your life? My definition of success has changed so much over the years. I think that if you love what you do and you're good at it, that's a winning combo. But I want to kind of push that further and say that if what you do also aligns with your values, then that's a positive impact on yourself. And then to go even further than that, if what you do can also positively impact other people, I think that's when you find true success. Yumiko Kudota, thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations, a huge congratulations on the book. Like I can't imagine how tough it can be writing a lot of this stuff back down and kind of reliving it. But I know our listeners love the book and love you and I think so many people will find this chat so incredibly helpful. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I just want to say thanks to all the shameless listeners who asked to put me on. It's like a dream come true. (laughs) (laughs) Also the shameless book club girls and boys and non-binary, everyone on Shameless Book Club, writing some nice comments as well. So thank you to everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the brilliant Yumiko Kadoda. If you want to buy Yumiko's book, Emotional Female, we will pop a link in our show notes for where you can buy it. You can also find Yumiko on Instagram at mindbodymiko. That is M-I-K-O. 
As for us, well, as always, we are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. If you would like to also come and join our book club while you're at it, the book club that Yumiko mentioned multiple times in this chat, come and find us on Instagram at The Shameless Book Club or find us on Facebook, Shameless Book Club. To support the show, as always, click follow on Spotify, click subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you're feeling particularly generous, leave us a five-star review. Other than that, we will see you guys on Thursday for our weekly pop culture wrap. Bye. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.